Patrick, what's going on, my friend? Thanks for coming on. I truly appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Journalist, best-selling author, podcaster. Any other jobs I missed? Uh, that's a, a parent. <laughs> parent, parent pandemic, lockdown parent lately is a big one. We have so much to talk about, so I appreciate you blocking out the next four hours to come on and get over your whole career for me. I appreciate that, man. Yeah, exactly. My pleasure. You took your investigative journalism to the podcasting world, and I loved it. Tell me about Wind of Change. Did you enjoy doing that? I loved it. Yeah, it was really fun. I had done, um, you know, I'd only been a, a print person, really, um, writing books and magazine articles forever. And, and I had this one idea, which was just so wild um, and in some ways didn't feel like it would work as a piece of writing. So it was kind of a breakthrough for me to do it as a podcast and, and just really fun. I spent a year doing it. Besides being a podcaster, you're known as the New York Times bestselling author. First time you saw someone reading your book, where was it? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, I have, you know, it happened really a fair amount with Say Nothing. I mm -hmm. think it might have happened once with my earlier, one of my earlier books, uh, The Snake Head. With Say Nothing, I would see people occasionally walking, carrying it, or on the <laughs> subway, carrying it. And the, uh, the first couple of times, I would just go up to them and, uh, you know, and just say, hey, what do you think of that book? Um, and they wouldn't know it was me, so you can get a you can get a candid read. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was fun. It was a weird experience. I mean, it's it does not get uh, it doesn't get old that experience. Unfortunately, you're a Massachusetts guy. But when did you move down to the Big Apple? <laughs> uh, a long time ago. I came here for college in 1995. Where was your first apartment? On 113th Street between Broadway and Amsterdam. And how about all your times in New York? What are your favorite hangouts? Favorite haunts? Oh, man. I mean, um, God, you name it. A lot of them have closed over the years. But the um, like places I've been going to consistently forever that haven't changed, like Jimmy's Corner in Times Square. <laughs> of course. Um, the Corner Bistro in the village. Mm -hmm. I, used to, I used to live in the village um, years ago, and so we'd go there all the time. Uh, Grimaldi's in Brooklyn. Used to live in Brooklyn, you know, in Brooklyn, and so I would, uh, I would go there. I live in Westchester now, so these are all, these are a lot of places I haven't been to <laughs> in, a, in a while, particularly because of lockdown. But the, um, but yeah, I mean, these are, you know, the places for me are the ones that, that haven't changed all that much since I, I first came here. Uh, God, geez, 20, 26 years ago. Obviously, I want to talk about your two outstanding books that I recently finished. Obviously, Say Nothing and The Snakehead, which I was blown out of the water with. That was one of my favorite books I've ever read. But is it cool oh, if we talk you. about your works before and other things you do besides just the books? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm an obsessive traveler. I've been to uh, 77 countries, and oh, wow. there aren't many people I look up to. Like, I'm a big sports guy, but I don't sit, go around saying, like, Tom Brady's my idol. But Anthony Bourdain was someone I truly – he influenced the way I traveled. It wasn't like, hey, let's go to Paris sure. and go to the Eiffel Tower and then leave. Like, you know, you wrote an awesome piece on him. How did that project come about? So that was a um, – I mean, I should say I agree with you. I felt, I felt the same way about Bourdain, and I – he was someone I'd been aware of forever. I read Kitchen Confidential when it came out. Um, I was a fan of his, of his shows, and I had been doing – I had done a series of things for The New Yorker that were just really dark. I wrote a story about the Boston Marathon bombing and a story about the Lockerbie bombing. And I had done the article that became Say Nothing, which was about you know, war crimes during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And so I was looking, basically, I was kind of approaching burnout and um, looking for something fun. And uh, they asked what I wanted to do. And I said, I want to write a profile of Anthony Bourdain and travel <laughs> with him and hang out with him. And, 
really go, you know, he'd been profiled a lot, but the nice thing about the New Yorker is they'll give you the room and the time to do it in a, in a really comprehensive way. So I spent a year hanging out with him and, um, hang out in New York. I went to Vietnam with him, um, got to know him really well. And it was a, you know, it was one of, one of the greatest experiences for me as a writer that I ever had. Of course, of course it has this very, very, uh, uh, sad ending, which is that we, you know, when the, the piece came out, he liked it. We stayed in touch. Um, we kind of became friends. We did a few events together and uh, I knew that he had a, a dark, some dark stuff that he was wrestling with, but I did not have an inkling of how bad it was. And so, um, you know, it was a, it was a big, a, as big surprise to me as it was to anyone when he killed himself. You took the words out of my mouth because the reason I love the New Yorker and the reason I've always been a fan of your work is the long pieces. It wasn't a sit down quickie. Hey, Anthony, where do you like to eat? Where do you? You went full in depth, and I love that you made the article completely about him, which some authors and you know you're. You read, they they make it. They always try to input themselves in the story, and you didn't do that. But you were in Vietnam with him, which is one of the coolest things. You got this, you know, uh, recovering addict who's now a celebrity chef who tra- travels the world, and he's sitting down with the president of the United States. And you met yeah. Anthony after that, right? Like after that uh, initial meeting. Yeah, like hours afterwards. Yeah, yeah. He was still just like humming with energy from it. And, and what made you choose Vietnam? Was it like, hey, wh- where are you going next? Or the New Yorkers? Like, oh, that's hey. funny. Yeah. So we no. So it's interesting. Actually, this is a good story. So we we went back and forth. It was always the idea that I would travel with him, and we just didn't know where. And like there was a there was a period where it looked like we were. He wanted to go to um, to Kashmir, and it was all a question of like, can you get in, and is it safe? And uh, so the, initially there was an idea I was going to go there, and then they said, what about Vietnam? And I said, yes. And the thing that was interesting is that there was something they weren't telling me. And I could tell, like they were very (laughs) kind of, um, they were very like tight fisted with the details. And to a point where I was getting a little pissed off because it was like close to, you know, I'd gotten a visa. It was like close to the time when I was supposed to be leaving. And I still didn't know, you know, when am I going to be meeting with him? What's the deal? And, um, when I arrived, uh, I think I literally I think the plane landed and I got I got my my turn my phone on and I had all these text messages <laughs> because it turns out he was like he had had the secret plan to have dinner with the president. And then immediately I went and met up with him um, right after that. So the uh, so the, the there's the scene where he meets the president in the piece is like you feel like you're there. And the, and the reason for that is it was a reconstruction. I wasn't there. But I talked to him right after, and then what I did is I got the CNN gave me the raw footage oh. of the whole thing, so not the edited thing you see in the show, but the actual like raw um, footage, which we, we had to, which CNN never does, so we had to get it, all, it appealed all the way up to get them to approve that. Um, but yeah, it was an amazing experience. How was it going around New York with him? Like I know he's known internationally, but in New York, you know, he was an icon, he was a legend the last few years. How was it going? To- around New York was everyone just running up to him like hey where should I eat or how was the scene when you were out with him in in Koreatown and everywhere yeah you know it varied from place to place I mean the funny thing with him honestly is I think he's so because his show was watched so much internationally it wasn't that different in New York than it was in Hanoi like he yeah like in Hanoi people were were just mobbing him and he was very you know he's very courteous but the uh You'd see there's a funny thing, a scene that I, I think I described this in the piece. At one point, we um, he did an event at the 92nd Street Y and we were supposed to meet up afterwards. And um, this was actually funny. They 
they were like, oh, why don't you find a restaurant in the area, you know, and you guys can meet up afterwards. And I didn't, I'm, I'm like way out of my depth <laughs> on the Upper East Side in general. And then on top of that, I didn't want to be the guy who's like making a restaurant recommendation to Bethany Morgan. So his, um, so his assistant ended up booking us just at some like local place on Third Avenue, a little sushi place. And it was, you know, it was like nothing to write home about, but it was fine. And they didn't, you know, they didn't pick it because it was a great meal. It was just like close by. He wanted to sneak out um, after the event and just be able to go someplace quiet so we could talk. And it was this funny thing I noticed where you realize like the hazards of being Tony Bourdain, the, you know, the, the owner of the restaurant like comes over and is talking with us and he was very polite and nice. And then, you know, as we're leaving, like she wanted to get a selfie. And there was this funny thing where she was like it was almost like watching two people dancing like she like puts her arm around him and starts and starts like pivoting his body because she wants the sign of the restaurant in the background of, of the course selfie. of course because she wants it to seem like you know like tony bourdain aid here it's like an endorsement and of course for him where like this they just literally picked this because it was like the closest thing you could see him again it's like a dance right he like <laughs> G like gently pivots her body back in the other direction and it's like no no i'm happy to take a picture with you but you know we're gonna get third avenue traffic in the background uh like i said uh, his suicide i don't want to say hit me because i work in a profession where unfortunately there's a lot of suicides and a lot of death and people look for the signs but when i had andy ricker on who was uh he's a chef and he did the thailand episode with him when they partied all uh -huh. over thailand andy told me uh, i think he said it on the podcast i wasn't sure if it was afterwards He's like, after Bourdain would film a scene, he would sit by himself. Like, he was always lost in his thoughts and that the um, the show kind of made him, it kind of pushed him a little more. And he never wanted to be alone. Like, you know. Yeah. And, and they said that was always him. Did you not notice that? But did you see, like, when scenes weren't on? Because, you know, you we need him in the world. He made the world totally. a better place. Did you totally. see him, like, differently when the cameras were off him? Yeah, I mean, that was very much my perception was that he was a um... – he was a performer and he um, it's a it's a tricky thing to talk about, I think, because on the one hand, I think part of the reason that he had such a following and that people to this day still still love him so much is there's a perception that, you know, he wasn't fake, that he was who he was, that the guy you see on camera really is that guy. And I think that's true. I don't think it's that he was like, you know, getting into character and playing a part who wasn't him. But I think it was more akin to, you know, like if you know stand-up comics or, you know, people are in a band, you, you know, when you got to be on, it's you, but it's kind of an, a slightly exhausting, taxing uh, version of you where you're, you're kind of amping it up. And um, I very much got that impression hanging out with him that he would be, uh, and the cameras are on and he's... You know, he's going into a place and he's he's having dinner with somebody and asking them about their life or, or talking to people who own the restaurant and asking them about the food. Um, he's the best company in the world. Uh, everything is like dialed up to 11. And then he gets out of there and it's depleting. It's exhausting. Right. So he needed to kind of retreat into himself. And so I think it was this kind of strange thing that I spent enough time with him to see this in action. That It's this kind of it's like it's a paradox that he's on the one hand, he's this incredibly incredibly genial fun outgoing guy on the other hand he was he had he definitely had a side that was kind of introverted and quiet was it always investigative journalism slash author for you because according to wikipedia which obviously is never wrong you earned a degree from yale law school so are you showing off or did you want to be a lawyer also <laughs> no i didn't you know 
I mean, I'll be honest with you. I always wanted to write. I didn't know um, how to make it happen. I, when I was in college, I, I wrote uh, fiction. I thought that would be what I would do, but to be, I, I, I think I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I, um, I didn't know any, I really didn't know journalists growing up. I didn't know people who were professional writers. And so some of it for me was just trying to kind of figure out how do you, you know, it's one thing to want to do it. It's another to figure out how to, how to break in. And so I think there's probably a part of me that's practical and I was just a little worried that I might not be able to make it work. And so I thought I could become a lawyer and that would be, you know, like a profession I could count on. Um, there's another little detail, which is that the, the woman I was dating at the time, who's now my wife, uh, was, was going to law school at Yale law school. And, uh, so I, I kind of followed her there. So that worked out and, uh, I have no regrets in that sense, but it was, but by the time I was, I think it was the nine 11 happened a week into you know, a week into law school for me. Um, I was in my second week of law school when it happened and that, um, after that, I kind of knew, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to write a book. I wanted to do something. And so I ended up getting a book contract and, um, I finished it up just because at that point, you know, I'd put the time in and, and taken the loans out to, to go to law school. And so I wasn't going to, to leave with that, to leave without the degree would have been crazy. Um, so I finished, but, but I knew, uh, probably the practice of law was not for me. So here's the dilemma, Patrick. I have on a ton of athletes, authors, you know, celebrities and stuff, and usually I'll finish a book and then have the author on to discuss it. But unfortunately, I recently finished both of your books. Now, I know you have three of them, Snakehead and, yeah. of course, Say Nothing. So first of all, congratulations on the success of them, the both, because they were phenomenal. Like, I read both of them last year, five-star books. But is it cool oh, we talk about you. Snakehead? Because I know most of your interviews are about Say Nothing. Is that cool? Yeah, absolutely. Because I have so many questions about it. First of all, what made you want to write a book about it and not just a long piece on it, but an actual full featured book? So it started as it started as a piece in The New Yorker. That was actually my first piece for The New Yorker. And it, it, it picks up, interestingly enough, from law school. So I had written my first book, this book, Chatter, that came out my last year of law school. I decided I should I should study for the bar exam and pass the bar again, just because who knew if somebody was going to let me write another book or you know, if I could make a living as a writer. And I spent the summer, I was living in the village. I was going to NYU to do like a bar, you know, like a kind of bar preparation course. Um, and so I would go every day and I would usually, you know, get a coffee and buy a newspaper on my way in and sit in the back and read the newspaper. And um, that summer, this woman's sister Ping was on trial uh, in uh, in a federal courthouse in downtown Manhattan and the tabloids in New York were all over it. So the, the post and the daily news had these crazy stories about this woman who, you know, had operated a human smuggling uh, business out of a, a little restaurant in Chinatown on East Broadway. And what was really interesting to me was that she, this wasn't human trafficking. She wasn't bringing people over who didn't want to, you know, but she wasn't putting people in prostitution or anything like that. It was just people in China wanted to leave and come to the United States. They couldn't do it legally. And so she would, they would pay her to come here and she would smuggle them in. And what was fascinating to me was that even as she was on trial and it was this big FBI investigation that brought her down, um, in Chinatown, she was regarded as a hero. That people said, you know, this woman is not a criminal. She's a saint. She has helped so many people. And that to me seemed really intriguing. 
And so I just started spending a lot of time in Chinatown, you know, uh, for New Yorkers certainly will, will, uh, New Yorkers of a certain vintage, New Yorkers who are old enough will remember that in 1993, she had this, there was a ship that she was involved in the smuggling called the Golden Venture, which ran aground in Rockaway, um, with 300 people on board who'd come from China. And, um, so that was what got me started was telling the story of this woman and the Golden Venture. And it started as an article. And then I just thought, you know, there's so much more here. And so I spent uh, the next few years um, traveling to China and Southeast Asia and Hong Kong and, uh, you know, Canada and all over the U.S. researching that story. How difficult was you? Because, you know, when people think Chinatown, they think Mott Street and Elizabeth over there. But you East Broadway is like, you know, the Fukunese, like another world. That's real Chinese. How difficult was it you, white dude, going into Chinatown, not speaking the language, and basically getting all that intel? Because you got interviews with everybody. How the hell did you make that happen? It took a long time. It took a long time. I mean, and and um, you know, the uh, it was an education. I th- I think it was, you know, the language thing was interesting and and a little tricky, obviously, because I I don't speak you know it's I don't speak Fujianese, um, or or Mandarin or Cantonese, um. But even there, it helped sometimes. Like to give you an example, the um, uh, you know eventually Sister Ping ends up in prison, and I tried to get into the prison to see her. At a certain point, I knew her lawyer, and she said, "Okay, I'll meet with him." But then the prison wouldn't let me in. She was at a federal prison in Danbury, Connecticut, and um, and so what happened was instead we worked out a deal where there was this woman who had been her interpreter for all of her court hearings and all her legal stuff for years who agreed to go in and bring in like written questions for me, translate them into Chinese. Uh, and then, um, have sister Ping respond and then translate the answers back. And that ended up, if you think about it, like if I went in and met with sister Ping, it would have been kind of an awkward, interaction in a whole bunch of ways instead what happened is my emissary was this woman who she knew who was speaking her language who she trusted and i think that the answers she gave were in some ways way more revealing probably than what she would have told me you know if i had had the language skills to to meet with her myself so it was on some level it was like any other project where you you know you get to know people people like that translator people like the lawyer there were people in chinatown who i got to know who open doors for me. And that's true, you know, whether I'm writing about Chinatown or the IRA or, uh, you know, whatever the subject that the, um, you sort of start with one link on the chain and then hopefully you build trust and one person leads you to another. Well, that's what I was actually going to ask. Where did the trust come from? Because you're not roaming around Chinatown where she's revered being like, Hey, talk to me about sister ping. I'm writing a book. Yeah. 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 Well, particularly given that the, I mean, it was funny, the, especially early on, and this is a long time ago now. I mean, I started work on this in 2005. And um, so in, especially at the beginning where I was just figuring out how to be a reporter and how to do that. And you would just there were a couple of really comical moments where like I would show up at some like, you know, basement mahjong <laughs> parlor on like Eldridge Street. And I'm like a white guy with a you know button-down shirt and a notebook. <laughs> um, and it was just there were these times where people would look at me and just be like, "There's just no way." You could just tell, you know, they're like, "Nothing good is going to come of opening the door and talking to this guy." Um, so it took a while, but I, you know, what happened was that there were um, 
there were some people, there's a guy who is still a very dear friend of mine who um, is an accountant and he was an accountant for uh, a lot of the Fujinese community. Um, he's from Fujian province. Uh, but he, you know, he's, he had been over here for a long time. He speaks perfect English. He had read my, you know, he read my New Yorker article. Um, and he knew everybody. Um, he, like he knew Sister Ping. He knew all kinds of people who'd been smuggled over. And so he was like, he was kind of like my, my rabbi. I mean, he, 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 he introduced me to people and, um, really paved the way. And there were other people like him who were almost like brokers for the community. You know, and once they, once I had their vouch, um, it was okay. And actually when I went over to China, he went with me and opened doors over there as well. So it, it, those relationships really were everything. You had this incredible ability in all your articles and stuff to make the passengers of the, of the golden venture who would today, and I'm assuming back then, be considered legal aliens. You humanized them. You made kind of us root for them. Not that we shouldn't. You gave them all a voice. Did you know you wanted to tell their story and not just assist the pink story? Was it like, hey, I want to do everything with it? Well, that was, yeah. I mean, I wanted to um, to kind of, the big thing for me, the whole name of the game is, a lot of the time, is, is um, uh, it's intimacy. It's I want to show you people in a way where you're close enough to them that, any easy judgments that you might feel um, get a little harder. And it doesn't mean that you necessarily embrace them um, in every respect, but, but that they are humanized um, to a point where you have to try and understand what they're doing and that you can see it from, from all sides. And so um, uh, if you look at, you know, the snakehead, you've got sister ping, who's this like fairly ruthless human smuggler, but who came from, you know, very humble kind of tough background in China. You've got, um, the passengers, uh, who, you know, I think are incredibly brave, right? I mean, they did things that I couldn't imagine doing myself, but you've also got a lot of law enforcement characters. Um, and you can sort of see it from their perspective as well. And the whole idea for me is like with each of these people, I want to, you know, I want to get close enough to them that we can kind of see the world through their eyes. Um, and, and I think, you know, hopefully that's, those are the stories that are most interesting to me as a reader. Like I don't, I don't like reading stories where there's kind of an obvious good guy and an obvious bad guy, um, heroes and villains. And yeah, everybody's painted in, in really broad brushstrokes for me The you know, what's interesting is the complexities. Now, I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly or if it's going to make sense, Patrick, but I'm going to give it a whirl. The golden venture was the center of the book, but it had all these like different layers that I just said that they, you know, they branch out to. And even with like segueing into say nothing, you used the murder and abduction the same way. It was a central piece of the story, but it branched out to a hundred other stories. Is that always your goal, like to make sure you can branch out? Oh, that's a great way of putting it. I mean, I, I um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think so. I like the, uh, in thinking about what, it, what will sustain a book, so not an article, but something that you'll really, you know, you're, it's a big investment of time to read a book. For me, it's the... Um, yeah, it's, it's having some kind of narrative device that can pull together all these interesting stories and characters. And, you know, the worry is that it feels like it's too diffuse um, or that I'm just kind of giving you lots of random stuff that's unconnected. So the nice thing for me about um, uh, The Golden Venture and also The Murder of Gene McConville in both of those cases is that they kind of tie the book together because they, you know, you take all these different types of people and stories and issues that you're interested in um, 
and connect them. Yeah, you you put it more elegantly than I could. That's that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly what it is. That's that's very much what I'm what I'm looking to do with these with a longer you know book type project. Irish dude, Irish name from Mass. Was it inevitable that you were going to write a story about the troubles in Ireland, or did something really stand out again? And I know you went from a story like I'm going to blow this one up. Did you know that? Uh, I didn't know. You know, it's funny. Um, I think a lot of the time there's the assumption that, yeah, because I'm Patrick Keefe from and not just from Massachusetts, but if you know Boston, I'm from a, a neighborhood called Dorchester, which is a you know fairly Irish American. Um, the, the, the area I was from is a fairly Irish American area um, that I would have come to this subject for that reason. But honestly, it was just that, you know, I sort of stumbled on this story and did it as a New Yorker piece just because I thought it was an amazing story. And then um, it was a little bit like the experience with the snakehead where once I got into it, I just felt like there's so much more here. You know, it was a long article that ran in the magazine, but I felt like there's so much more. And um, so I just I kept going, you know, and um, it was a I think if you had asked me when I was starting that project in 2015 or thereabouts 2014 2015 I would have thought that my my like my Irish roots would have played more of a role <laughs> um you know like I thought like my dad I had this kind of funny conversation I would a number of times I would have these conversations with my dad where he'd be like because I kept going back and forth to Northern Ireland and to the Republic too and my dad would say, you know, oh, everybody's, you know, they, they must be asking like about the Keefs and like, you know, where did, what about, you know, your ancestors in Donegal? And, um, and nobody did, nobody, nobody did like they, you know, to them, I was American, um, you know, not, notwithstanding the name. I'm not even going to dare ask you to try to explain what the troubles were because we would need uh, five days yeah, to do that. Podcast. Can you give a brief synopsis on your book, the New York Times bestselling book, Say Nothing? Yeah, it's so it's about a um, it's about a in 1972 in Northern Ireland in Belfast um, at the at the height of the Troubles, which is this long conflict uh, in Northern Ireland that lasted three decades. There was a woman named Jean McConville, and she was a, a mother of 10. She had 10 kids. She was a widow. Her husband had recently died. And she was living in a housing project in West Belfast. And one night, a gang of intruders came to the door and uh, they were armed and they took her away and they told the care kids were clinging to her legs. They told the kids, um, we'll bring her back. We just want to talk to her. But they never brought her back and she disappeared. And it turned out that she had been murdered by the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, and uh, secretly buried. And so the book is a um, it's a sort of pretty close investigation of that case, that that disappearance. Um, and then the consequences of it uh, and the larger story that it can tell about the troubles. And so that, you know, that ended up being a kind of a really significant event that would have repercussions that continue to play out even today in Northern Ireland. And so, you know, the idea was to not write a history of the troubles, but write something that in a way is more of a true crime book. It's a little bit, it, you know, hopefully it, it reads more like a novel. It's all true. Um, but that it would be kind of approachable. It's a, it's a book about a handful of people and this one act of violence that connected them. Handful of people and one, I guess, group of people fascinating, the Price Sisters. They seemed like a marketer's dream. Pretty girls, rebels, anti-establishment. They were the first, I guess, women to join the front line. How important were they to the movement? They were very important. I think that they... Um, 
you know, particularly they end up getting, they, you know, in 1973, they're barely out of their teens at that point, and they lead a bombing mission. Um, it's the two of them basically leading like 10 guys, you know, not nine guys um, who in many cases were older than they were. And they go off to London to plant these huge car bombs in London and blow up the old Bailey. And they ended up getting caught and going to prison and going on hunger strike. And at that point, it became a big propaganda win for the IRA because you had these um, charismatic, attractive, articulate young women who, um, you know, were, were sort of poster girls for uh, for violent Irish republicanism. And but also, you know, they, they go on hunger strike and it looks like they're going to die. Um, and they're they, you know, they were in Brixton prison, which is a it's a prison for men. They were the only two women in the prison because they were regarded as so dangerous that that was the place they had to be held. But you can see how from a propaganda point of view, uh, this is pretty irresistible. Um, and it was part of what was interesting for me was having grown up, you know, knowing about Bobby Sands and the hunger strikers in the 1980s, I didn't realize that there was this uh, earlier hunger strike by these two young women, but it was a huge story at the time. Did you feel, and this would always, I have a lot of uh, Belfast people who box who come on the show and we Mm -hmm. never talk about the troubles, but you know, after you have a few drinks at the bar, it always comes up a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Is it weird in Belfast? And this is what always kind of blows my mind. It was like, okay, we're signing the treaty. Okay, the troubles are over, guys. Have a good day. And nothing really changed. No one moved. Troops didn't really get out. Like, it just seemed like, okay, guys, be nice with each other. Do you feel the tension there? And maybe, you know, years have gone by. So probably the people I know, their parents probably dealt with it more. Did you feel that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the most striking thing for me, and this is, I I was probably just naive, but um, (laughs) for me growing up uh, in Boston, there was a perception in 1998, you know, you get the Good Friday Agreement and everything's coming up roses, right? It's like this amazing peace deal. And um, I think that what was surprising, what was surprising for me was to go over there and realize, boy, it's a cold piece. It is a cold, cold piece. You know, so you don't have, uh, I mean, there's still a little bit of violence on the margins, but mostly, you know, you don't, it's safe to walk the streets. You're not worried about, uh you know, gun battles uh, in, in the streets or, or bombs in public places the way you used to be. So that's a huge improvement. But it's not like there's been reconciliation between the communities. There's still a lot of tension. And um, if you go, as I did, you know, in July, when they have kind of the marching season, when they have these these big sectarian marches and huge bonfires and it's, you know, it's a scary, it's a scary experience. Um, it does not feel like a, um, uh, you know, to me, like a particularly peaceable place. Again, huge improvement on the way it was in the Troubles, but still, uh, still pretty grim in a lot of ways. I read somewhere or maybe heard you on a show or something. Were you supposed to interview Jerry Adams and then he flaked? What was the, uh, what was the thing <laughs> with that? So the, when I was doing the article, originally for the new yorker i had a back and forth with his people his handlers i mean jerry adams gives interviews all the time right so i didn't think he would necessarily be hugely inaccessible and he knew that what i was writing about was you know allegations that he had been involved in that that woman jean mcconville that he had actually authorized her murder um so you would think you know that 
that uh, well, let's put it this way. If he didn't have anything to do with it, which is what he says, you would think he might want to uh, say that um, and talk about it. But he he ended up they ended up saying, no, he doesn't want to talk. And I had this kind of uh, there, there was a sort of a funny experience for me, which is that at one point every, every year, Jerry Adams comes to this to New York to do fundraising. And he generally does a big dinner at the Sheridan in Times Square. And I went one year. This is when I was working on the article. And at that point, he hadn't said no yet. Like it seemed his people were saying, oh, yeah, he might talk to you. And so I went and I kicked myself for this in retrospect. But before his speech, you know, so this is like a big ballroom with 500 people, you know, uh, waiting to hear him talk. And I went to use the men's room and I, I'm walking past this like little corridor and I see Jerry Adams by himself uh, down the corridor and he's like going through his notes for his speech. And so it was the perfect moment. Like I could have walked up and talked to him. But what I thought at the time was, no, you don't want to do that. You'll, you know, you'll piss off his people <laughs> and like they're going to give you the interview. So, you know, don't don't blow your chance. Um, and it turns out, of course, that was the only chance I ever had. Oh. I should have. I should have gone and talked to him then. One more question about the book. Obviously, it blew up. It was everywhere. Like you said, people walked around. It was like the cool book to carry around and stuff. I, I, I felt bad. I read it in a Kindle, so no one knew I was even reading yeah. it. Um, <laughs> when did you know it was a special book? Now, I know President Obama mentioned it, and it was on every list. When did you know, like, oh, boy, I have a hit on this? I, you know, it honestly, it took me by surprise. It, it really did. I... Um, uh, the reviews were good and, and like coming right out of the gate, the reviews were good and that was great and, and uh, really affirming. But I didn't know, you know, I mean, the troubles is not a subject that um, everybody was like super impatient to read a book about. You know, it was not a um, when I was working on it, um, it didn't seem like something that um, there was going to be a big hunger for. But um, I, I think the there was this kind of slow build where people were reading it. It was really largely word of mouth. Um, and I think the thing that was really encouraging for me was that it was, I, I wrote it deliberately to try and make it a, a, a approachable, right? So that you didn't have to be a scholar or somebody with a background in the troubles. You know, ideally for me, you could know nothing about the troubles in Northern Ireland. You could pick the book up and you wouldn't feel like you wouldn't feel lost. Um, and so, really the most gratifying thing for me is that that, you know, that seems to have, have worked in the sense that people who um, heard a recommendation from a friend or what have you, but who generally would not be the kinds of people who would, would pick up a history of the troubles did pick the book up. Um, and uh, that's been amazing. I mean, it's, it's really been, um, you know, it's been like no other experience I've had as a writer. Picking pieces, you go from this, this snakehead, Bourdain, and then you even wrote about El Chapo. Like, how do you even pick, and I don't want to say what, obviously you have the ability and who your name is now to pick and choose, but what made you even choose El Chapo then? Because you, you had him, Patrick, you had him before the whole world knew about him, really. 20, 2012, yeah, 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 yeah. No, believe me, the, um, I remember having to, the first piece I did about him was 2012, and I had to, so I started it in 2011. And I remember having to explain to the New York Times, that was for the New York Times Magazine, I had to explain to them who he was and why <laughs> it would be good to write a piece about him. Um, Chapo, I was, the thing, there was something very specific that was interesting to me about him, which is that um, 
the you know there was a tendency there has always been a tendency to focus i think on the violence of the cartels which is which is right we we should i mean they do awful awful things but what was interesting to me was that they are also are often very successful businesses and so what i wanted to do was look at a cartel as a business and um you know look at the way they make business decisions uh how do they treat you know extortion how do they think of murder how do they you know when do they vertically integrate why is it that a mexican drug cartel um you know they will be uh you know the old expression is from from the farm to the arm it's like they you know they will produce the drugs they'll do the transport they'll get it up to the u.s they'll get it as far as big big kind of um distribution hubs like a place like chicago but then they don't want to be involved further on at that point they just want to sell it to wholesalers um who can then distribute it and it's funny i mean you think about it i had a conversation with one person who said you know it's it's uh it's one thing to be a liquor wholesaler and another thing to own a bar um <laughs> you know and it's i mean it, it but it's like it's i think we don't tend to think of mexican drug cartels you know thinking in those types of of terms and so that was what got me into that and then um Chapo was kind of the gift that kept on giving because he, you know, he at that point he'd never been caught and then he was caught. And I wrote a big piece for The New Yorker called The Hunt for El Chapo, where I got a lot of access to the, you know, the operation to bring him down. And then, of course, you know, as you know, he escaped. Well, and speaking he was about, and then he was recaptured. Didn't, didn't he want to meet with you or I heard something now. I wish I would have because I didn't know we were going to have time to talk about. Yeah, Chapo. It, it was it wasn't that he wanted to meet. Oh, OK, was, OK. Yeah. What it was. I mean, it's a wild story. Um, and but basically after the second story that I did, The Hunt for El Chapo uh, in The New Yorker, I got a call from a lawyer for the Guzman family. Um, <laughs> it's a funny story. The, <laughs> the This guy called and um, he left a voicemail and he said, you know, I, I'm a lawyer. I represent the Guzman family. Like, we've read your article. I want to talk to you. And I, I was alarmed and um, didn't really know, you know, how to handle this. Um, I did not tell my wife. <laughs> um, and uh, I talked to one of my sources who was a federal prosecutor then involved in going after the cartel. And I was like, do you know this guy? What's the deal with this guy? And he came back and he was like, yeah, he really is a lawyer for the family. Oh, crap. Wow. Um, yeah. And he, and he was like, and he said, the thing that he said that was funny was he was like, so the thing he's like, some of these cartel lawyers, you know, they're like 80% cartel and 20% lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, eventually I called the guy back and I had no idea what he wanted to talk about. And he, he was like, you know, you're the guy who wrote the piece. I said, yes. And, uh, he said, um, El Senor, they, they call him, they call Chapo uh, El Senor. He said, uh, he said, El Senor is ready to, oh to, to write his memoir. And I didn't, it was like I had gamed out 10 different ways this conversation could go. And I did, that was just not <laughs> a place I thought we were going to go with this. And, uh, and so I was just like kind of stammering because I didn't know what to say. And I was like, oh, like that, well, that's a book I'd love to read. And um, he said, but sir, is it a book that you would like to write? Wow. And, uh, and his pitch to me was that I would, I would um, 
basically like ghostwrite Chapo's memoirs along with one of his daughters who could get into prison to see him. Um, and I said, you know, I said no. Um, and even that was funny though, because I said no almost right away. And then he would he would email me and he would be like, <laughs> he would be like, as you continue to consider, and I'm like, no, I don't need, I'm not considering anymore. You know, I, as you weigh our <laughs> options, sir. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So anyway, I was, uh, it, and it turned. I found out afterwards. I eventually published <laughs> a little thing in the New Yorker about that experience. And after I did that, a couple of other journalists got. In touch. There was a guy from El País who got in touch with me and was like, yeah, they pitched me the same thing. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so I wasn't. It wasn't just me. I wasn't special. Are right, you ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? Yeah, absolutely. You and I are at a bar in New York City. I get you to leave Westchester. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? Oh, my God. I don't even know. You know, I would have told you Anthony Bourdain. <laughs> was it his personal number? I might let that one slide. Was it his personal number? It was. All right, yeah. I'll, I'll let that one slide. Okay, okay. What yeah. book are you reading right now? Uh, right now I'm reading, I'm, I'm rereading, uh, the novel, the secret history by Donna Tartt. It's great. One book you wish you could have written and not because of commercial success. I've had authors on who say, Oh, in cold blood. And there's what's one book you wish you could have written the whole topic and do the investigation on. Oh man. Um, uh, the looming tower by Lawrence Wright. Oh, that's a great book. Okay. Yeah. Two 30 in the morning. This is a few years ago when maybe you weren't parenting. You have a few drinks. Where are you going for your New York late-night food? Uh, um, you know, I shouldn't even say. I mean, I would go like the <laughs> – the, uh, I mean, I'm a big buy-the-slice pizza guy. Okay. Um, so the so for me, like when you say that, what I flash on is, is, is Coronet, which is like like – incredibly terrible huge <laughs> slices of pizza up near columbia which is still there and they still make these they, their, their slices are like a half a pizza so when i when i think like late night drunken uh food exposition that, that that's expedition that's where i go one show you found yourself binge watching during the quarantine that you never thought you'd watch uh the queen's gambit oh did you enjoy it i did Listen, my friend, this was awesome. I hope it was different, and I tried to touch on a few different things. It totally was. It was great. It was really fun for me to talk about The Snake Head. I haven't talked about it in ages. I love that book. It was, it was great. I, listen, I'm looking forward to your next book. What is it, The Empire of Pain? Is that what it is? Empire of Pain. It's out in April, April 13th. And listen, when you start doing your tour, you come back on again, all right, my friend? That sounds great. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. Patrick, thank you so much. But hey, just give the plug where everyone can find you, uh, in, uh, Instagram, it's, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter. Instagram and Facebook, it's at uh, P. Radden Keith, all one word, at Radden Keith. My friend, thank you so much for this. This was a blast. Thank you. Great to talk. See you later, pal. All right. Bye now.